Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Keep It Nation, Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Fettles, and I want to thank you as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations for better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. I am extremely happy to be in Tuga today. I've actually been here all week. Show on Monday, which was a awesome success, went down memory lane, if you will, with Chattanooga and talked successes over the three years that that the show has been been going on. And uh, yesterday was Demo Day. Who, who who haven't heard yet? This is what I refer to as summer camp for geeks, where we bring a bunch of entrepreneurs all over the country and create stuff and create interesting stuff. And this year, this is the third one. I've actually been to all three. This one was particularly spectacular on 3D printing. And if you've been following the show, you'll know that we, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the, the issue of broadband networks, building gigabit networks. But we really also have to give some uh, serious attention to the applications because it's not the is what you do with it that turns lives around, transforms. Uh, that is where all the innovation takes place. Now, one of the gig um, focused on was 3D printing, and uh, I've been wanting to talk about this for a while because it's very awesome. It takes a little bit to get your head wrapped around exactly what 3D printing is, but today I've got uh, two of the companies that presented at, uh, at, at Demo Day yesterday. Uh, one is Feats, which is a manufacturer and retailer that, cut, that fit footwear uh, for consumers of all shoe sizes and shoe sizes uh, that some folks have to work with, and it's, it's definitely fascinating stuff. There is also uh, with us today is uh, oh, actually, the CEO of Feats is with us. And Lucy, I'm very happy to have you on. Craig, I'm excited. And we also have 3D Ops, which is a company, also a 3D printing manufacturer, that is uh, medical devices for pre-surgical planning. And this really is, is a cool day for me because I get to talk about 3D printing and also telemedicine beside myself and, and, and from uh, 3D Ops is Clay Posey, who is a Chattanooga uh, uh, resident, native. Were you born here? Born in Atlanta, but... Uh, Close enough for horseshoes. You're, you're <laughs> and welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, before we talk about your companies, let's talk about 3D printing. What exactly is that? And we'll start with... You know, you can fill in some of the, you know, perspectives, but what is it for the layperson? Well, you know, I often describe it as the fun part is when you used to decorate a cake, you would take one of those little icing things and squeeze out the icing through a little pipette at the, at the bottom, uh-huh. and you could then spin it round in any direction you want and build it up. That is kind of what 3D printing is, but we get the fascination of putting any material through something and creating that icing on the cake mm-hmm. in any structure or pattern that we want. Okay. So, uh, Clay, how would you describe uh, 3D printing? Well, I think Lucy is, is 
if somebody's trying to visualize what a 3D printer might look like, they can think of that inkjet um, that they have sitting on their desk at home or, or, or sitting at their work because there's a print head that moves around in there, and a 3D printer does exactly the same thing. The difference happens with a base that is also moving head that can move left and right and front to back, and then the base moves up and down. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to actually print in three dimensions. And so let's step from a concept that people probably are comfortable with, which is 3D modeling. So and 3D screen, and it has the full 3D. You can look mm -hmm. at it in the size and the tops and so forth. But what does a printed, what does the output from a 3D printer look like? I mean, if I did a 3D model of a foot, does it print out a foot size six? Or what, what do we look like? Well, the output, um, whatever object you gave it to put in, it's that computer that goes back to the early days of computers. When you have garbage in, garbage out, something good in, you get something good out. If you put a 3D model of a Coke can, you're going to get a 3D model of a Coke can out. Okay. Um, if you put a 3D model of a human brain in, you're going to get a 3D model of a human brain out. So it's going to go from virtual to real. And in Lucy's case, she takes a 3D model of a shoe mm -hmm. and, and presto, you have um, using additive manufacturing, which is the same for 3D. She can tell you more than I can about that part. Mm -hmm. So a physical thing that you hold that is the replica, whatever it is. And that's really taking off. Okay. Uh, the prototyping industry for years. You know, from the footwear industry, they want to know what a shoe is going to look like before they spend millions of dollars of putting it in a production run. So how can they physically see the shape and the size and the color and the style in a 2D picture? Mm -hmm. Or even in a 3D model, is on a screen, and you can, can rotate it, and it you need to touch it. Right. And that's what 3D printing has allowed you to do. Uh, from the footwear angle, they use it for prototyping. What Beats is doing is saying, you know what, we don't need to prototype. You can actually make the end physical good you can wear on your feet that's good for you. It's breathable. It's going to last for 500 miles out of a 3D printer. Mm -hmm. So in, then let's take this then another step. Why broadband? Why is being here with a gig network so Well about the data. Okay. It's about move, uh, taking the technology service of having this gigabyte network, but then combining it in manufacturing. So we're taking videos from consumers, okay. and they have to send it over the network. Okay. So they're across the world. They're sending it to us, standard data charges, etc. Once we have that file, we have to break that down into all the different files that are in there to turn it into a 3D, mo to the 3D model. Mm -hmm. When we have that 3D model, we're then creating it into a foot model and a shoe model okay. and dynamically changing that so that a user can then see, that's my foot, that's my shoe, and then they can design the styles of it. That's going to require an enormous amount of data and leverage on a network to be able to do that. Because are they doing this in real time? They are doing this in real time. Okay. We're talking like Mongo data, Mondo data, just like huge, and, and you're being able to interact with the user who could be literally across the planet, and you've got to make it real time. Absolutely. And the amount, you know, you think, oh, 3D model, that must be easy. But a 3D model is 
dots that make up what a 3D model looks like, okay. and they're called polygons, and it's a mesh that puts them all together. Similarly, that would be like on it. You make it processing power, okay. which is what we're going to be doing with the Gigabyte Network. So let's talk about uh, 3D Ops then, because um, you're, in some respects, redefining surgery. You know, I'm, I'm summarizing some of your presentation yesterday, but what are, what are the details on 3D Ops? We, we really are. Um, redefining the way surgeries are planned for as much as anything. Ultimately, we do want to change the way surgery is done. Surgery has been done the same way for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. um, recent technologies have, have been great for surgeons in that we have MRIs, we have CT scans that can look beneath your skin and reveal everything that's there. The problem is it reveals it in two dimensions. Okay. The surgeon operates in three. Right. It's a tactile arc. So no matter how high the resolution, no matter how many different slices is what they're called that are taken in an MRI, you're still looking at a two-dimensional creation of what's going on inside the patient. We take that MRI data and we, we have the same data issues that Lucy has with feet. We mm -hmm. take that MRI data or that CT scan data, which is a series of sequential images um, where that uh, that MRI machine virtually goes through and slices you just like a loaf of sliced bread mm -hmm. uh, to create these images. We reassemble those into a 3D virtual image. Uh, and then we use that image to print out whatever the surgeon needs in order to be able to plan the surgery, whether it's uh, the location of a tumor, whether it's an aneurysm that's going to be tricky to get to to put a coil in in the brain, or whether it's because you need a valve replacement and they need to see your aorta uh, to be able to, to make sure that valve is going to fit properly. Mm -hmm. Instead of having to look at a 2D image and say, okay, we think this is going to work and we're, we're not sure about that, uh, and they don't really know until they get inside the patient. We give them ability to actually handle that patient's anatomy before that patient ever goes on the operating table, before they ever go under anesthesia. So it basically allows you to do a test drive of the surgery. That's mm -hmm. a good way to put it. <laughs> we are... Um, as, uh, as our president, uh, CEO, Daniel Hampton, said uh, in his presentation yesterday, we're trying to take uh, the words exploratory surgery out of the medical dictionary. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So now, then, Lucy, you're doing a similar kind of thing then with, with the foot mm -hmm. in order to um, create a, a shoe. And I think the example you used in your presentation was like someone with like a super wide foot. Well, yeah. So... Right now, there's about 17 preset sizes, that is, what shoes are made of. They have like a wooden block that's shaped like a shoe. Mm -hmm. They take a piece of material and they cut it, and it's a pattern, and then they mold it to these wooden blocks. Okay. But they can't afford to make every different type of combination of foot, but you literally are unique in your foot. No two feet are the same. Okay. So why are our feet, which we walk over 100,000 miles in our life, mm -hmm. why are we actually trying to fit it to 17 sizes? Okay. So we're saying with 3D printing, you can actually make one of a kind. You can do it. So if you have a wide foot, if you have a narrow foot, if you're size 17 or size 12 and three quarters, or maybe you have your left foot is different to your right foot. Mm -hmm. And it's actually more common than we think. It's one in five Americans alone that have problems impacting the type of shoes they buy. So we said, why isn't the industry doing that? Because 3D printing is hard and it's emerging, so we've tackled that problem. 
by using 3D printing, but making our own materials, our own software programs, and our own machines in 3D printing that allow us to do that so mm -hmm. you have a good shoe. Now, is this going to change or remove the issue of uh, different, uh, the, the metric system in just about everywhere else and the system we use here in the U.S.? Because when I bought a pair of shoes over in Italy one time, I didn't quite grasp the full, you know, difference, yeah. and I got shoes that were too tight. But if you're using uh, an app like Feet, mm -hmm. can you basically then not really worry about whether the local folks are using you know, Feet or they're using centimeters, yep. you just basically put the image in, fit the shoe, produce the shoe, and away you go. So Craig, you're going to be size me. <laughs> and that's the new sizing system, right? Because okay. you're right. All this metric, and Japan has a different system to Europe, to the U.S., and, and you're not only talking about the width and the length, but also the volume of your foot, mm -hmm. and it changes for everyone, and yet we don't really consider that. So instead of trying to fit into a system, why don't you change the system to be size me? Right, okay, and that makes a lot of sense. So now look, coming back to uh, you, Clay, in doing what you do and, and, and creating the 3D replica, um, I'm assuming then that it actually creates whatever the imperfection or the injury or what have you. Because in some of these cases, I think you might have mentioned like brain surgery. So you can, in essence, create a 3D image of the brain. You're going in to find, you know, what might be a, a, a clot or what might be a, a scar tissue on the brain or what have you is the technology to the point that when you're creating a 3D image, it is exactly that which you are turning into 3D? It, it is, Craig. What, what we're doing in our term is patient-specific. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to creating a generic model of the brain, if you have a particular medical issue, we are creating, the reason we're here is because we're recreating that issue for the doctor. The printer that we use allows us to print in multiple materials at once and allows us to print in multiple colors. So we can differentiate for the doctor skin, bone, muscle tissue, fat, uh, or tumor, if that may, may be the case. Mm -hmm. They can then work with that, manipulate it. Um, they can use it to explain to the patient what's going to happen. So if you were going to have to get, have a surgery, your doctor can walk you through what she's going to be doing for you before you go in. It's going to increase the confidence that you have in your, in your doctor. And because they can do that, uh, we now have data that surgery times are, are typically reduced by 50% when 3D modeling is involved in the planning process. Mm -hmm. So how does this change? I mean, I, I sort of look at this and listen to this, and, and, and my mind starts revving at 50,000 you know, RPMs trying to just imagine, well, then you can what is, what's the potential? I mean, it seems like it's just awe-inspiring what the potential is. Well, the, the modeling is the first step for us. Okay. Um, and I'll go back to, to the case of a, a heart valve replacement. Mm -hmm. Heart valves come in standard sizes, just like shoes come okay. in standard sizes. Right now, a heart surgeon is going to look at a CT scan of the heart and make their best determination from that 2D image as to what size valve that's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the trick for us as humans is we all grew. We weren't manufactured. So inside each of us is an aorta, but each of our aortas is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Some are perfectly round. Some are oblong. Uh, you have branch arteries that come off of that. We all have the same branch arteries that come off, but they may come off in different places. 
Those are all things that it's very hard for that surgeon to determine from a CT scan. They really have to get the best bowel fit they can from looking at that, and then once that patient's on the table, uh, make those final adjustments that they have to make. But at that point, they're adjusting the patient to fit the valve. Mm -hmm. For us, right now, we make those uh, models of the aorta to make that heart surgeon's job much easier on the planning side and being prepared before they walk in. The next step for us is to be able to create that valve that, uh, just like Lucy has uh, size me shoes, and I hope she's got that copyrighted, <laughs> so I'm not going to steal that. But, uh, but we'll make a size Craig, let's say, heart valve, if that's what you need. So if you have a little bump or a little dip in your aorta, that that valve is going to conform precisely to your anatomy, mm -hmm. uh, which is going to improve your outcomes from the surgery as, as a patient. You're going to recover faster. It's going to perform better for you. Um, we mitigate the risk for the, uh, for the surgeons and for the hospital. Uh, it's, it's better outcomes for everyone all the way around mm -hmm. once the um, 3D printing industry gets involved. Whew. So this is some pretty, uh, this is some pretty heady stuff. In, and, and so because in your perspective, uh, from your perspective, Lucy, what you're doing is similar type of awesomeness for the fashion industry. I mean, obviously one part of it, the mm -hmm. shoe part, but basically it is the ability to take whatever you're trying to replicate and be able to take it in all of its imperfections to create a perfect replica so that you can then do something with it. In your case, put a mm -hmm. shoe on it. Uh, I think one of the other folks that did a presentation was all about fashion and general clothing. Absolutely. So you might get a suit that perfectly fits your body mm -hmm. um, without actually having to go in for a fitting. Mm -hmm. you know? And in the medical world, I mean, you can, you can test uh, uh, you have surgery, uh, you know, bone replacements, and, and all that kind of mechanical stuff. But then if you think, think beyond fashion or you think beyond the medical world, you then start to see also a similar kind of transformation in other industries of basically changing how mm -hmm. they do what they do because all of a sudden now, rather than to have to go out and worry about damaging a $100,000 part for some piece of uh, complex machinery, now you can basically create the dummy and you can work on that so that if you make a mistake, you're not screwing up the $100,000 piece of equipment. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this is, I mean, this is why it's fascinating what 3D printing is really doing. Um, a lot of consumers and people tend to see, oh, it's like little hard plastic things and it's like an iPhone case or mm -hmm. like a cute bobblehead. But what it's allowing to do is it's truly the third industrial revolution. It's allowing us to make things in new ways that we never thought were possible before. But it just takes great minds like, you know, Clay and myself to say, I wonder if, mm -hmm. dot, dot, dot. And we want other people to get involved. I mean, it'd be great to see what other people that are listening to actually think about what can 3D printing do. Mm -hmm. and the thing is, Greg, Lucy and I are both involved in dealing with the soft end of the material spectrum. Mm -hmm. We need things to mimic body parts. So except for skeletal parts, they're by nature soft. She makes shoes that are soft and comfortable and very flexible. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a whole range of 3D printing on the other end where you can print in titanium. Mm -hmm. So now we see turbines for airplane engines. The fins are being created using additive manufacturing, 3D printing, because it's more precise 
and the parts are more uniform. And if you've got something that's spinning at several thousand RPM, that's important. So turbine fins are being created that way. The reverse thrusters on the new SpaceX uh, privately funded uh, shuttle, mm -hmm. you can go back and forth. Those thrusters are 3D printed on that. There's 3D that are withstanding thousands of degrees of heat and multiple kilograms of force uh, in the thrust, and they're performing admirably, and they're done on a 3D printer. Mm -hmm. So earlier, we, you, know, you talked about um, the, the need for, for speed because of the complexity mm -hmm. of the data and so forth that you're working on. And um, coming from, from Alameda and having lived in the Bay Area for a while, I will have to say I was a little distraught when at the end of your presentation, you said that you're basically leaving California and to come move to, to Chattanooga, which in the audience, of course, stood up and applauded and everybody was like righteously joyous. Uh, but the thought that crossed my mind was, um, what is going to be then the urgency for communities that want their businesses to take advantage of this technology, what is the urgency for them to get better communication systems that can support this type of, of technology? Well, Craig, just, uh, you just stepped up onto my soapbox. Okay, fine. <laughs> Step on over. <laughs> um, the thing that makes our business work, the thing that makes Lucy's business work here is the gigabyte the gigabit network. Mm -hmm. um, we deal with large files also because of the MRI imaging. Um, we can also then turn around and print those medical models in hospitals around the world mm -hmm. using remote printing, but manipulating the data here in Chattanooga. Chattanooga has what it has because it was a public effort. Right. Uh, the internet here is publicly owned. It's available at every residential and business address inside the service area of the local utility. So gigabit internet in Chattanooga is as ubiquitous as clean water. Mm -hmm. When, uh, and understand, I'm as a serial entrepreneur, I'm a huge free market advocate, uh, but making internet service a public utility is what is part of transforming this town. Right. Uh, and we have had delegations from other cities that have come in during the, the gig tank to look at what we're doing, uh, to find out how they can model it on their own. Um, because it's affordable, it's accessible, and it becomes an engine that helps drive growth here. So what's your take on this? I mean, yeah, so here I am, a, a Silicon Valley transplant that's been wooed during the summer here. Um, I'm used to high volumes of data. <laughs> I worked at Zynga and Intuit for mm -hmm. years, especially Zynga is, you know, fantastic amount of data. Um, for the next round of business, and especially combining it with different industries like 3D printing, it's not just the gigabit network on its own, it's about how it partners into their industries. So I could stay in Silicon Valley and I could do the modeling and make it really fast, but I need to have a hosted network be able to manufacture this, mm -hmm. right? These files have to be sent to my printers and they're just printed, and then I also have to have a logistics network that can actually get to the whole country ship the shoes out within a couple of days. So it's not just about where you put a network, it's how you then partner into the other ecosystems that your city, your town, your county actually has so that you can utilize it in new refreshing ways. Mm -hmm. So that to me then brings up the question of 
it's not just the infrastructure, it's also the programs that support that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it would be interesting to sort of talk about, so in California, you know, we have Silicon Valley, so we have the concept of being the center of the technology universe, mm-hmm. right? And that's your perspective as you've worked in it, in the Valley. Yeah, and I might then, be biased a bit, right? Just a bit. Well, just a little bit, just a wee little bit. But then, Clay, you're in Chattanooga, and you have watched an infrastructure, not just the physical technology infrastructure, but things such as Gig Tank and, and things the Chamber does and things that the, uh, I think, the Technology Alliance Group does and so forth. Um, what's the difference in being in a place that has, you know, this broad range of ecosystem versus, you know, you, Lucy, being in a space that, that doesn't have all this yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, because in, in Silicon Valley, which is kind of depressing, we don't have gig networks and we surely don't have the same kinds of infrastructures as that, that's growing up here in Chattanooga. So we'll start with you, Clay, to kind of talk from that, you know, this side of the experience, and you can talk, mm-hmm. Lucy, from coming from the opposite. Well, I'll give you a little bit of history first on Chattanooga. Chattanooga historically and we'll go back to post-Civil War. It's an industrial town. Mm-hmm. A lot of manufacturing located here, a lot of old-school steel mills, tannery, glass factory, ceramics factory that's now been repurposed into the building where Lucy's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, as that industrial base began to die, the city died with it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 70s, and forgive me for not knowing the exact date, Walter, Walter Cronkite on his evening news, declared right. Chattanooga to be the dirtiest city in the country. Mm-hmm. I can remember topping one of the ridges coming into town, and you're looking down into sort of a bowl of orange soup. Oh, boy. Was the smog that hung over the city. Mm-hmm. And Chattanooga made a conscious decision to change that. Mm-hmm. And it was a decision that was made by the government. It was made by local business leaders. It was made by the educational institutions that were here. And they all came together and said, we want to be different. And so they began to chart a vision forward. It's a vision that's transcended various administrations at the county and the city level. Mm -hmm. It transcends political parties. Uh, It's created this progressive city that is about innovation, redevelopment, the new generation of manufacturing, um, and creating that sense of civic pride so that whatever barriers are there uh, in other places, Chattanooga has intentionally set out to overcome those. Okay. And that is part of the building then of the infrastructure as it built the gigabit network. Well, actually, it started out as a fiber network. But as it went from fiber network to gigabit network, then what you're saying is that philosophy that propelled the city from the 70s and being kind of at the bottom of the pit to then create resources to basically capitalize on having that, that gigabit infrastructure. Right. And we have the old legacy infrastructure still here. Right. You can get to the majority of the population in a day's drive mm-hmm. from Chattanooga. You can be in New York City, or you can be in Miami, or you can be in Chicago. So for trucking, Lucy has to get these shoes to her customers. So she has the ability to ship rapidly across the U.S. Um, because of that legacy infrastructure. We have rail lines. Chattanooga is a rail hub. We mm-hmm. have the river here. But beyond that, we decided we were going to take it a, a step further and a step into the 21st century mm-hmm. in, uh, in making this happen. Okay. And so now we have magazines like Outdoor, Outside Magazine that say this is one of the greatest cities to live in the country. We make 
every month the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or USA Today about not only the business environment that's here, the political environment that's here, but just the lifestyle mm -hmm. that's here. Uh, it's, it's really quite an amazing place, and it was a surprise to me coming back to this area after me having been gone for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had not been here for the summer, do you think you could have created this app while you were still in Silicon Valley? Oh, were you in Silicon Valley or were you in San Francisco, by the way? Um, I was in San Francisco. You were in San Francisco, Yeah, okay. you know, I've been down in the valley and then in the city as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I tried to, this is a combination of using hardware, and I actually um, reached out to a few of the hardware accelerators in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. and also San Diego because I call both my home. And I found that there wasn't a lot of actual hardware support mm -hmm, networks mm -hmm. or like local manufacturers for that. You know, I okay. really didn't even get a response. And, and remember, it's a combination of not just building a software side, mm -hmm. but also the hardware side. And then for us, we're building materials as well. Right. So there's like physical things. Right. And Silicon Valley's good, and they're starting to. There's getting a lot more. But most of the response I got was, well, what we're going to do is we're going to send you to China for a few months, and, and, <laughs> gonna, and you know, you're basically going to tell them what to do. And right. I was like, I'm not quite sure that's what I want to do. I actually want to do local manufacturing. Right. Um, and I'm sure Silicon Valley will get there, but they weren't there right now. Right. And when I reached out to try and find out, well, where can I combine great high-speed technology and understanding and talent, but also with traditions of manufacturing, not just old-school manufacturing, but modern manufacturing, Chattanooga is what stood out. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, in the months that I've been here, I've been to VW and seen the most advanced manufacturing plant of cars. Mm -hmm. You can translate a lot of what they do into a footwear industry. Chatham and what they're doing with the pharmaceuticals. Um, and then small companies like Variable Technology doing embedded sensors um, and sensors into the B2B market. There's like a lot of buzz going on of how people are thinking outside of the box. And what I thought coming out of Silicon Valley, I'm like, I'm never going to see anything I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. So I have been very impressed, not only with the business, but as Clay had said, there's a lifestyle here. You mm -hmm. know, it's a great mid-sized city, so you can get to know people. And it's an ecosystem where people are here as a team to help you. Mm -hmm. It's not a, who's better, I'm getting money so you're not, I must succeed so you can't, I know this person so you don't. It's really, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. And as a startup, you've got to have help. You're going to put your hand up for help, and that's exactly what Chattanooga has helped with. Right. So we'll flip the order, and I'll ask the same question to, uh, to, to both of you, but we'll start with Lucy. So San Leandro has a, a gigabit network, and they are at what I would call the beginning of the climb into having a, a full-blown infrastructure of, of innovation. Now, their CIO... Uh, who's a good friend of mine, is aggressively moving the city's thinking to, you know, we have to think differently in order to take advantage of this technology and innovate and so forth. From your experience and your decision to move, what advice would you give to San Leandro and Palo Alto, who's doing an RFP for a network at the end of this uh, month, what would you tell those cities that they need to do to create an app, to create an ecosystem, not just build a network, but what would it be, what kind of things do they need to do to have an, uh, an innovation ecosystem? Yeah, and I can speak as a startup, right? There's, mm -hmm. From different perspectives, it's going to be different. 
I was looking for a place that had great technology. So that's like, all right, tick, San Leandro, you'll have that. Mm -hmm. But then I need support of an entrepreneurial culture. So there's other startups there who are trying to do things. Mm -hmm. Do you have that? Then one thing that all entrepreneurs need is money. Right. So do you actually have an active capital network, Mm -hmm. whether that is private equity, whether that's, you know, grants from the city, whether that is VC firm, but if there's no money, then you're going to have to move somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you actually have the industry experience, like you can't tackle the whole world. What is the niche that you want to combine with that high-speed technology? Mm-hmm. Because if you try and do it all, you're just going to be plain vanilla. Right. And so that's where they've got to think about how they do that and get it, as Clay had said, from the political level, from the government that is supporting it, and the local level of just people on the streets. Mm-hmm. So now, in coming to you, Clay, Chattanooga is, well, EPB, the, the, the public utility that owns the network, is petitioning the FCC to basically get the ability to ground the state law that prohibits municipalities that have networks from expanding to other communities. So if Chattanooga is successful, they then have the opportunity to bring the network to these surrounding communities that aren't, that aren't getting it and may not get it from any other source. Would you, you know, say the same things in terms of advice to those communities as, as Lucy just said, or do you have some additional sort of tips for those communities so they understand that, yes, you're asking for the network, you're asking ETB to deliver this, and maybe one day they can deliver it, but is that all? Well, the, um, the gigabit in and of itself is only one piece. Mm-hmm. You can put the technology there. And what that means then, without everything else, is people can play games better and they can stream movies faster. With political support, not necessarily control, um, then things can begin to happen. With business support and not necessarily control, I think Lucy hit on a key thing, and this was, if I have a big takeaway from my gig tank experience, it was the collaboration that went on here. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not used to working in an open workspace, which physically is what we had here. We have mm-hmm. 11 companies and we all share one big room. We have little spots at our table. I thought I would go nuts. I learned how to do <laughs> But what I found was Nigel, um, Lucy's CTO, could walk by my desk and say, Clay, have you thought about doing that that way? Or I could ask Lucy, I could say, have you thought about doing uh, pigmentation this way? And these kind of spontaneous interactions occur, but it's that organic opportunity. You can take that to a macro level inside Chattanooga, and you have businesses that even though they compete, they still collaborate. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there's a formula that you can do that. I think there's an environment you can create to allow that to happen. We had Chase Bank and First Tennessee, who are competitors, that collaborated to help sponsor what we do. Mm -hmm. We had two the two largest accounting firms in this town who are fierce competitors on the playing field collaborate to help us build our business models, figure out our valuation, determine what our market strategy should be. They came together and collaborated to help us and all of these folks doing this because they saw the greater good. There was no immediate payoff to any of the folks that supported and sponsored the gig pay. Um, there's no immediate payoff for me to assist another company if I have an idea about a marketing strategy for them or for them to help us solve a technical problem. 
but we did it because we realized that, first of all, none of us are smart as all of us, and a rising tide lifts all ships, to, mm-hmm. to just not be, be too um, colloquial. Mm-hmm. But, but when we all work together, everybody gets better outcomes, and that's, that's the atmosphere. I hope Lucy would agree with me as a newcomer to this area. That permeates mm-hmm. um, Chattanooga. It's infectious as well. I've so noticed that, that. You know, so I've, I've been invited out to football. You know, I, I actually spent 15 years in England, so football, football to me football, is like real football. football. All right, not there American you go. There you Sorry, go. guys. <laughs> no, here I am. I was like, hey, we've got free tickets. Come on down to the Chattanooga Football Club. And I go, and there's 9,000 people there. And they're like impassionately chanting and singing and watching these guys play. And I mean, like, that's just part of life. You don't just work, right? You've got to live life as well and have fun and go to the river um, it is hot here, guys. Yes, you know, it is. <laughs> not, I'll testify. That. I know that. But um, the people and the energy and the, pr- the proudness of being a Chattanoogan, you, you just see that everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. And that's a really fun thing to be part of. Now, both of you have been in other uh, cities, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think before the show we talked about, you know, you, you spent a lot of time in Atlanta, and I've been in several places. One of the things that seems to be, uh, I think, an issue is that the, the folks that drive a lot of the broadband projects, right, they have a certain amount of insight and vision to be able to say, we need broadband. They may not necessarily think they need a gig. They may think they can get by with less, sort of beside the point, but they've, they've at least come to the realization that they need this to be able to keep up economically. However, I don't know if there's a depth of innovation within those communities. Um, and, and the question is, and I've actually been debating this a lot over the last couple of weeks, how do you move a community that is not as forward-thinking as Chattanooga has become, you know, cause I, and, and, you know, either large city or small city, there's, there's a certain amount of inertia and there's a certain desire for safeness. How do you get past that? We can start with you, Clay, and then, Lisa, you can give your well, it, thoughts. I think one of the ways that it happens here is um, the business community, mm-hmm. the, the Chamber of Commerce here. If you go to the Chamber of Commerce um, and you say, I have this idea, you have all kinds of business people that they can put you in touch with. And the Chamber is a very close-knit, active group. Uh, and they're not... Um, the lobbying organization here that they're portrayed to be maybe in other areas, it is very much a support network. Mm-hmm. Um, the Business Development Center, is, uh, which is a public-private partnership here, is, is another example of that, where you have people that get, get underneath and help support that idea, and people who are always looking for the next new idea. Um, barriers to entry at the government level are reduced so that New ways of thinking, uh, particularly with our, our current administration, Mayor Andy Burke in the city, uh, said we're going to completely rethink the way government is done in Chattanooga because we want government to help and not hinder. And so he took his administration and went back and looked at every piece of the city government to find out what's working and what's not working, and if it's not working, what do we need to do to fix it? Uh, so as opposed to being in an area where I've been... Um, and I have a background in the construction industry, and I would spend weeks trying to pull a permit uh, to renovate an old building that's an eyesore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chattanooga makes that easy. 
to be able to come in. And so you see the area where we're located on the south side of town here being revitalized, where, where new projects are springing up, uh, construction's going on all around us, mm -hmm. uh, because everyone is supporting that effort. Uh, and, and again, it helps, uh, it helps the whole economy. It provides jobs, it provides energy, and it, it becomes, um, it's almost a snowball going downhill. It begins to feed on itself. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that the more energy is there, the more energy that gets created. Uh, and, and people are finding that sense of civic pride, pride again. So, so now what's, you know, what's your take? How can you get a community that may be steeped in its a, uh, political habits, if you will, um, and cultural sameness to, to shift over to a, to a mindset of innovation? Most people change when there's a catalyst, you know. Catalyst, you need a catalyst. You need That's a catalyst, a okay. and uh, it's either a carrot or a stick that <laughs> is going to be the catalyst, right? So okay. it sounds like Chattanooga had this catalyst in the 70s of like the orange pit, mm -hmm. and it was like, you know what? We're a bad city. And so, unfortunately, more people wait for the stick than they do the carrot versus saying, you know what, until we wait to get there, what can we do to create something that is going to be innovative, that is going to be the 22nd century, uh -huh. and how can we start building that now? Okay. But they do need a catalyst, and usually in your decision-making process, make sure you have diversity. Uh -huh. Make sure you're not all coming from the same background, that you have experience, that you have different demographics, that you have different points of view, so that those things are happening now, and you're not waiting to stagnate. Okay. Now, one of the things, you know, as I sort of look at, you know, I've, I'm actually from Philadelphia originally, and one of the things I have con consistently over years have talked about is that the city can have a very provincial approach to the world, as do a number of communities in, in, in Long Island, in uh, New England and the East Coast. And so it's difficult, and it's a multi-part issue that you have to address. So I think if you're, I'm, I'm sort of getting on a soapbox here, I think if you have a, uh, if you have that catalyst, you maybe need to then find one thing to do that creates almost in essence a pilot of, a pilot project for success mm -hmm. to show people that if you actually think and act outside of the box, you can change what you accomplish on the back end. Yes. Does that seem rational, logical? It is. It is one. Of, it is rational. I know one of the projects um, for Chattanooga that's been around for a while was a riverfront redevelopment. The mm -hmm. river in Chattanooga had traditionally been an industrial site. You pull barges up, you take raw materials off, you put finished goods on, and they go on down the river. Um, I don't know the details of the riverfront redevelopment, but somebody looked at that and said, "This is the greatest asset that this city has." Mm -hmm. It is now a thriving area with a preserved ecosystem with walkways and bikeways and parks and shops and there's still some industrial folks that, that are riverfront uh, that do what they do which is also part of the economic engine here but it was a cause that everybody could ra rally around mm -hmm. it was a um a place to start a place to begin to to clean things up and something that you had to see tangible results and it didn't matter it didn't matter what color your skin was. It didn't matter what your economic background or your education background was. Everybody likes to get their toes in the water. Mm -hmm. And so that was a good place, I think, to start. 
and to begin to break those barriers down because once people begin to collaborate on a project like that, they find out we're not all so very different after all and we can work together and those provincial attitudes begin begin to fade. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to maybe take you guys a little beyond your your comfort zone, but for the audience, I think there, there's a, a key point that needs to be made. So uh, in 2006, we had this big flurry of activity. Every community was going to build a mini Wi-Fi network. We were going to cover the city and we were going to provide free access. And one of the byproducts of that besides failure in the end because it just wasn't a good technology and it wasn't ideal for the goal that people were trying to hang on, hang on to it, um, was that you started seeing the RFPs, the companies that come in and attack the issue, and they all started to look the same. They were all the same basic RFP, right? Now, we fast forward to 2014, and I have now started to see a number of, of RFPs coming across my desk and talking to people who are bidding on these, and we seem to be at the same point of every RFP is looking like every other RFP request for proposal. Mm -hmm. now, I've sat through several of these pre-bid meetings where you know, the folks that are attending on the consultant side are like, they don't, they don't ask questions, these things don't take longer than 10 minutes. It's almost as if, well, we just know this, it's the same ritual, right? But where I see the downside is you get the same proposal for every city in response to an RFP to build a network and there is nothing in that process that lays the groundwork for creative thinking, which is what I think will produce the kinds of applications that both of your companies have. So given that RFPs seem to reflect a certain amount of inertia and caution, how do you, you know, what would your advice, Lucy, be to a city to, to, to put together a request for a proposal that somehow results in innovation happening, not a cookie-cutter proposal to build a network and run it the same way that everybody else is trying to do it? It's a good question. Um, now, I'm, I'm not sure what's in the RFP process in terms of the questions mm -hmm. to actually spur that innovation. Right. But you can very much have like a matrix for the decision process to okay. say, how will this, how, you know, how will your bid actually create 100 new businesses a year? And in what field? Yes. So it's creating yes. the question within the RFP process. Mm -hmm. What is the industry that you will pilot and partner with first by building this gigabit network in this area? Mm -hmm. um, who is your sponsor of a large company, but who is also your government sponsors? Or, hey, you know, the rich people, and how much money are they going to be putting into it so that they can use it within network, their network to do X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. So you have individuals, companies, but also entrepreneurs, and forcing it in that at that RFP process. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think, Clay? Um, well, I think, and again, because I have a background in, uh, in construction, uh, I'm familiar with the way RFPs work. Right. And have done contracting with the military who is, probably knows how to do an RFP better than anybody else. The purpose in that, just for people who may not know what we're talking about, is to create a very tightly defined project and set of standards that have to be met so that you can invite multiple bidders and everybody is basically giving an apples-to-apples apples bid. Right. What the outcome is exactly. going to be. Exactly. I think you have to take that process and stand it on its head. Launch Tennessee, which is a larger statewide initiative that uh, the company lab and Geek Tank is a part of, is going to be hosting something um, this fall called a, um, a reverse pitch. Mm -hmm. 
We had a pitch day yesterday where we went in as entrepreneurs and pitched to large corporations who were in the audience, investors who were in the audience, and we said, we have this great idea and this great solution, we need some money to do it. Reverse pitch works like this. The large corporations come in, the Fortune 500 companies, the Fortune 100 companies come in and they say, we have this problem. We don't know quite how to solve it. We think we might know, but we're not sure if we know. So now we're talking to you, a room full of entrepreneurs. You tell us how you would solve it. Mm -hmm. So there's not an RFP of we need you to design X to do Y. It's here's our problem, which takes some vulnerability and some transparency on their part mm -hmm. to admit they have a problem, first of all, and then right. disclose the, the details of that at some level uh, and allow entrepreneurs who what we do best is creativity. We sit around and think stuff up. Right. So you turn that loose on the entrepreneurial community and let them come back to you with solutions. Lucy's solution is going to be different than mine, different than yours. Mm -hmm. Somewhere between the three of our solutions may come out an even better idea. Mm -hmm. But it turns that whole RFP process upside down so it's a bottom-up way to problem solve rather than a top-down. Does it right. make sense? Yes. In fact, I have been searching for this answer for a while because the frustration level with me has been high. And I, like, I've been talking to other people who feel the same way. And it basically is saying go to the people who can create a solution and, and, and open it up and say, well, what kind of solution would you create if we wanted a, a community of innovation driven by high-speed network? And that truly changes the, the perspective. Mm -hmm. I would go a step further and say, in the same token, you have to go to people who have the problem, who live in an economic area, who want to see other businesses or jobs or better jobs come to the community and have them define a sort of a set of parameters for what they want the network to kinds of applications that they might want to see. I mean, that's not... Not happening, but should happen. Yeah. It absolutely should happen. I was only just going to pile on to what Clay had said. Uh, I worked it into it, and you would have full days called idea jams, mm -hmm. and it would allow they would put the problem out. They literally would say like, "This is the problem. We we need to get a more mobile mm -hmm. as a company," and they would allow just grand teams to occur. And at the end of the day, they would pitch to the executive staff. Mm -hmm. um, after a couple of those, they said, "You know what? We really need to get our customers though in here too." So they would have idea jams and actually bring customers in, too, to work on these problems all day. And that actually helped really transform the business. So if you take that and transpose that onto this government level, city level, having to make these decisions that impact the whole community, mm -hmm. it, it's just piling onto what Clay said, which mm -hmm. is very eloquent. So one of the things that we talked about on... Um, you know, actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to change that for a second. We only have about uh, 10 minutes. Let me redirect this. Um, listening to about 11 presentations yesterday, um, and one of the reasons that you're here is because of your, you know, the pre-presentation through uh, the gigabit write-up about how you wrote about your, your community, come on, and it made, it, it made an, an impact. But also, the two things that seemed to come out of the presentations that you gave, both of you, was um, this idea of um, you identify something that a lot of people can also uh, identify with and kind of how you define your app. You know, in your case, Lucy, it's about people with weird 
sizes, you know, You're having... Are calling me weird now, I'm Chris? sorry. I'm sorry. That's not come out right. Okay, fine. Ah. That'll work. That'll work. But it's the, it's the idea of finding something that you can identify with and building a product idea on top of that. So that's like one part that I felt was a com- was consistent between your presentations and other presentations. And the other part was to tell a story because I think everybody who was memorable from yesterday had a really interesting story that they, they, they interjected into their presentation. How vital is that to basically driving the development of a, a project? I mean, because I'm, I'm trying to basically boil innovation down to at the front end of a process, if you do these two things, you sort of create a story, you, um, uh, you, you identify something that a bunch of other people can identify with, and you go and develop and, you know. Well, I think... I think your personal story is critical. Daniel Hampton, our CEO, worked in the medical device industry. And the nature of his job as a mechanical engineer in doing product development is he would find himself in the surgery suites a lot. Mm-hmm. He witnessed just how brutal, which most people have no idea, a knee replacement is, mm-hmm. where you have tools laid out for the surgeon that look more like they belong on one of my construction job sites <laughs> than in the you have saws and you have drills and you have glues and all kinds of things going on there. And that surgeon doing a great job and I have older relatives who have had knees replaced that are very thankful they had it done, but you basically reshape the human body to fit that knee that came out of a box. Uh-huh. And Daniel started thinking there's a better way. Right. And that's how this company was born. Everyone I've talked to about what we do can immediately tell me a personal story. Well, wow, that would benefit my aunt. That would benefit my child, in my case, my son-in-law, needs a heart valve replacement. Mm -hmm. That drives me on the technological development because I know I can make that surgery safer for him. Mm -hmm. Um, In the case of Lucy's company, I myself had an automobile accident as long as a young man. I now have one foot that's a triple E, and I have one foot that's a D. One foot's a 12, one foot's an 11 and a half. Holy moly. Yeah. So I always have one shoe that's really, really loose. That's what it boils down to. So, you know, everyone can tell Lucy, I know someone or I have a problem, or maybe it's not a problem. Maybe you just want shoes that just say, these are Craig's shoes. (laughs) (laughs) And and you've got your own personal identity tied up in those. So, yeah, everything gets born out of that personal story. and. And the more effectively you convey that personal story, the more excited people get about what yeah, I mean, you've got. We're human beings, right? We are beneficial from having wonderfully intelligent brains that can have computational facts and make decisions very logically. And my background as a mathematician is that's how I've lived my life. And at the same point, we're emotional. Mm-hmm. We have that capability to feel and to process thinking and feeling. So if you only try and use one part of your brain of the rational part, you're going to find that you don't succeed very well. It makes you no different to anyone else. But once you capture someone on an emotional level and tell them a story and ask them about their feet, their lives, they always then buy into the process a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So translating that into the broader community development of Gigabit, it's Get the vision, get the story there. Get people telling them what they want the future to be or what their problems are now so that it will help them translate what the future is going to be. Mm-hmm. 
So in, in I guess, wrapping, because we've got about four minutes to go, and we'll, we'll start with Lucy and then, then Clay, what is one piece of advice you would give to fellow entrepreneurs to try to drive broadband in their community? Because there's, you know, there's a lot of interest, but there needs to be, I think, some folks that are cheerleaders that are moving, that are out there really pushing their communities to get this done. What advice would you give to, you know, your fellow entrepreneurs to help them be that champion or one of those champions within their community? Or if I take so first, we're going to kick it to me first. Appreciate that. No question. <laughs> No, well, I think a couple of things have to happen. One, um, and I'll quote from, um, from Steve Jobs, people don't know what they need until you tell them. You don't realize what a gigabit can do until you experience it. So as an entrepreneur, find some place where you can experience that. If it's inside a corporation, if you come take a vacation here in Chattanooga, which is a good place to take a vacation, <laughs> right? um, then do that. But catch the vision for what that can be and learn to say what if. Because once you find your dream, once you find that spark inside of you that says, I can do this to make my little part of the world better, then you can become that evangelist that you have to be to drive that kind of innovation forward. Mm-hmm. It can't be a balance sheet play. You can't do it based on the numbers because numbers, at the end of the day, and no offense to a mathematician, don't inspire people. Right. Stories inspire people. Children that can access learning materials that can go to college that might not be able to otherwise. That changes the community. When you can take a child that grows up on the bad side of town and because they have gigabit access at their small house in their small neighborhood, their education is transformed. Mm -hmm. And when their education is transformed, their mind is open. So you as an entrepreneur might not be the benefit, see the benefit of that in your business because of the time that it takes to build that net. But you're looking at larger than yourself and you're saying, okay, I'm going to start this and then that eight-year-old, is going to be the one to finish it. Okay. All right. We got 90 seconds. I'm going to give one line. I was going to say, (laughs) show, don't tell. Okay. If you're an entrepreneur, don't try and talk about it. Exactly what Clay was saying. Just show, don't tell. And, And if they are armed with that philosophy, then you think they can basically go out to their communities and show them, you know, this is why you need to go. Find the problem that local people have. And show them the answer. Build a prototype. Build it fast and cheap. Show, don't tell. Awesome. This is great advice. Hope everybody's got writing notes there uh, in the audience. I want to thank both of you, Lucy and Clay, for taking time. I know you're tired. At the end of a long summer's work, you guys have produced awesome stuff. And 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 to take one more moment to kind of go out and rehash. It's been awesome. I really really appreciate it. As does the audience. Well, thank you, Craig. Thank it's you very much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, to our audience, I just, again, think that this has, um, you know, been an awesome experience being here in Chattanooga. I'm not ready to move yet, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay there for a while. We're working on you. So the Alameda Chamber can relax for at least another couple of months. But, um, you know, there's a lot of good stuff here that, that, that's happening, and people need to observe and they need to talk to other people in their own communities about it. On Friday, we're going to talk about cloud computing. 
also up there with 3D printing in terms of a new technology that relies heavily on massive bandwidth. So you want to check in on that show. Thank you very, very much, folks, the audience, uh, guests. Uh, it's, it's been a great day. It's been a great show. Uh, we'll begin soon.